You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad you're here. Uh, by the way, this band, right? So good. So good. Um, wow. So a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I were at our annual couples retreat that we do here at Calvary, which if you've never gone, you really should sign up and go to it. And if you have gone, you're probably already signed up because it's so good. People go every year. And, um, and if you're not married and want to go, well, you got work. You got to meet somebody, get them to fall in love with you, buy a ring, get married all before September. So now I'm not saying it's not doable. You just got to get motivated. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, uh, but one of the things we do at our retreat that I love is that we don't just, it's not wall-to-wall sessions. We really try to create a lot of free time for couples. And we do that because a lot of times, especially if you have little kids, couples don't have a lot of free time, but kind of the big thing is date night on Saturday night. We kind of build towards date night. And um, so the last couple of years, um, we had, my wife and I have gone to uh, my favorite restaurant for dinner, which is a steakhouse called Fleming's, which is right down the street from the hotel. My wife is not a huge steak fan. And so uh, a couple years ago, I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make, I'm not going to make the Fleming's reservation. I'll make a reservation at a place she likes. So I made a reservation at this restaurant called uh, Seasons 52, if you're familiar with it. Now, if you aren't aware, Seasons 52 is a nice place, but they have, they do dumb things, and um, people make stupid rules, and then, you know, like one of their dumb rules is that no dish can be more than 400 calories. Like, hey man, isn't life hard enough? And they say, you got to make life more difficult? Well, anyway, so, um, and so that means that all of the portions are really small, and so you got, if you want to even get anywhere near feeling full, you got to have like, it's not just like, oh, I just went, I ordered a salad and a meal. No, it's like, oh, do you want a starter? You know it. Do you want a, a, a first course? You betcha. A salad? Need one. Main course? Bring me two. Dessert? Let's bring several. Okay. And so that's kind of how you do it. But then you get to the end. I have ne- I've been to Seasons 52 several times. I've never left there and felt full. I eventually get full because I swing by McDonald's on the way back. So, but anyway, so we go to season 52 this night and I'm looking over the menu and it is slim pickings. And at this point in time, I was on such a super strict eating regimen that it was a tough place because I wasn't having any sugar, anything with bread, anything that would remotely bring joy. And uh, so, um, and then as we're looking, my wife looks through the menu and she's like, you know, I'm going to order a steak. And I'm like, what? What? Why, why are we here? What's the point of this entire exercise? I mean, I love you so much. Order whatever you want, baby. It's, all, it's, it's uh, whatever your heart desires. So anyway, so I'm struggling, and I talk to the server, um, and she start, says, well, you know, you want to know what the best thing is on this menu? I said, yeah. And she starts telling me about this roasted cauliflower appetizer that they had just added that she swore up and down to me was so good. It's so good, you know? And, it's, and, and, and so, by the way, that woman is also a liar. And uh, so I got it. And let me tell you what I got when I ordered this thing. 
It was a giant head of cauliflower cut in half, covered in Parmesan and cheddar cheese. And it, first of all, no amount of cheese can hide the taste of death that is found in, uh, a, in cauliflower. It looked like a human brain. It's like they cut the cauliflower and just kind of laid it down. It looked like a human brain, and it was the size of a volleyball, which is what it looked like when I spiked it and gave it back to her. I didn't do that, although I thought about doing it, but I couldn't because I'm Christian. And so, but then the whole kicker, the, now they did, I will say this, they gave us this really nice table in the corner of the restaurants, all these, um, there's all these uh, windows, and so um, Carrie is sitting by one of the windows, and so I'm looking at her, and so I'm sitting there eating my plate of vegetables, and as I look beyond her shoulder, I can see Flemings across the street. And she's like, wow, you're just really gazing at me like, yeah, lady, that's what I'm doing. And, uh, and anyway, so, uh, but I want to talk in our time together, I, I want to talk about a meal. I want to talk about the communion meal. And so we're going to talk about in our time together, we're going to talk about what it means. We're going to talk about why it matters. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've been part of church for a while, part of Calvary for a while, you probably have experienced communion at some point in time. And, and I know there are those who maybe you don't know exactly what it means or why we do it, except that it's just something Jesus said to do. We're not really sure why. But Jesus calls communion a memorial. So we're going to see that as a memorial. The other thing that we're going to see in our text today is we're going to see a, a woman whose act of worship is so beautiful and extravagant. Jesus looks on and he says, you see this? This is a memorial that no one is ever going to forget. The other thing that we're going to see is we're going to see uh, someone's life also become a memorial, but in the wrong direction, as this person's um, life begins to unravel with false belief and betrayal and regrets. So this is, if you can believe it, message number 40 in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's what we call Passion Week. So it's, it's Wednesday in Passion Week. By the end of our message, it'll be Thursday evening of Passion Week, and Jesus will be just hours away from being betrayed, arrested, and, un and the beginning of undergoing six mock trials through the night before he finds himself being crucified on Friday morning. But there's an undercurrent, and this is I also, one of the things I also want us to focus on in our time together. There's this undercurrent that's traveling right underneath the text that we're going to study today, and it's asking us this question, is that what do you want your life to be known for? Because every person in our story that we're going to look at is making decisions that are impacting their legacy, impacting their future, whether good or bad. And listen, wise is the person who realizes and understands that a legacy is not something that's built in a day. It's something that's built every day. So we're going to start in chapter 26. We're going to look at verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Now it came to pass when the disciples had, uh, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And if you pause there, and give me your attention. There's three things we're going to look at when it comes to what does it mean to build a legacy in your life. The first is this, is that a good legacy begins with trusting God. Now, if you've been following with us for the last few weeks, you know that Jesus has spent four weeks giving his disciples this private teaching on 
the subject of his return and the conditions of the world at the time of his return. Jesus gets done with that teaching at the Mount of Olives, and then they, they leave, and he reminds them that after two days, he's going to die. Elsewhere in the city, and if you can kind of picture, it's almost like the camera pans to Jesus and his disciples as he's talking, and then the camera then changes to something happening at the same time across town, and it's these chief priests and leaders, the power brokers of Judaism, plotting Jesus' death. And here's the thing that I just can't get away from as I read this passage, is that these chief priests, these religious leaders, they really think they're under control. Uh, uh, They're in control of what's happening here. They're plotting and planning and saying, hey, we're not going to do it this week because it's so busy, but next week we're really going to trick Jesus and catch him and kill him. And the the word for it, it says they're going to catch him by trickery. The Greek word there is this Greek word uh, dolos, D-O-L-O-S, and it means to catch someone with, with bait. So the whole idea is, I mean, like you're catching a fish. And so the thing, they think they're the ones moving the chess pieces, but Jesus is the one that's saying, hey, this is how it's all going to go down. Jesus says two days, and guess what happens? It's actually in two days. And they thought they had it all figured out until something that they hadn't expected takes place, and that is one of Jesus' 12 disciples reaches out to him. Now, um, I want to skip down to verses 14 to 16 because it's really connected with what happens early in the chapter. But it says this. It says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, Here's the thing that happens. These guys, they're plotting and planning, and they do the same thing that we do sometimes, is that we just think that we see everything, we think we're geniuses, and we've got it all figured out, when the reality is we see so little. It's hard for us to even totally interpret just our perspective, when the reality is is that there's entirely different perspectives that we don't even see. And this is why I think the more mature you get in your walk with God, the less you trust your own wisdom and the more that you trust His. Now, to illustrate that, when I was about 19, uh, I was starting college. You say, well, why do you start college at 19? It's because sometimes you have to go to high school an extra year. So anyway, uh, I was starting college, and my dad was going to help me out uh, to get a different car. And so he said, look, you go to some dealerships and look at some cars. You narrow it down, and then we'll go tomorrow and, and get it. And so he was in town. Uh, he lived in Boston. Uh, we were here. And so um, so my, my wife and I, we were just, just started dating. And so we go to a few places until I found it. I'm like, this is the car. Now, before I tell you what kind of car it was, I just would like to remind everyone in the room, this was early, this was like 1993. This is the early nineties. There was a certain cultural thing going on. So I just, I think it's important to share that before I share the kind of car. So anyway, so I see this purple low rider truck. And if you remember, in the, if you're old enough in the 90s to remember, remember those lowrider trucks that were like just inches off the ground? They couldn't even go over speed bumps. Anyway, it was like that. And it, it was so awesome. I loved it. And it had over 100,000 miles. I didn't care. And um, all I could picture was myself driving down the street with these giant speakers that were in, that took up half of the bed of the truck. And I just saw myself blasting speakers, and then people in Palm Beach County could hear what I was listening to um, because it was so loud. Anyway, so I I go back to my dad. I'm like, hey, I found the right car. This is it. It's really going to be great. And so he says, all right, let's go look at it. So we show up at the dealership, and my dad just starts looking at the truck. He's just kind of doing one of these. 
He looks around. He starts kind of poking around. He says, okay. He says, Robert, did you see the giant crack in the windshield? Okay, so no, but that's easily corrected, I'm told. My people tell me, like, you're 19 years old. You don't have people, okay? And so anyway, so then uh, he looks around, and he says, okay, do you see all the dents in this car? I mean, this car looked like it had just gotten back from Operation Desert Storm. Um, and so, and I'm like, okay, I didn't, I didn't see that, but I'm, I'm told that. Anyway, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Um, so he's standing on the driver's side. He goes, okay, go around and open the passenger door. I want to show you something. So I go around, and I go to open the passenger door. <clears throat> <clears throat> Nothing. I go around to the driver's side. I go inside. I pop the thing. Nothing. The door doesn't open. It, apparently, it's welded shut. And, uh, and, and so, and, 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 and he's like, okay, can we, can we rule this one out? And you know the crazy part? I hadn't seen any of those things until my dad just showed me a different perspective. And then we ended up going across the street to a dealership, and, and uh, he got me, uh, he, he helped me buy this uh, Chevy Cavalier. It was an 88 Chevy Cavalier that uh, later became infested with cockroaches, but that's a different story. I used to call it a cockroach training center because if you showed up, if you were stealthy at night, you could see the roaches doing laps on the steering wheel. But anyway, but that's a different story for another time. But the principle that we learned, and listen, this is big. The principle that we learn is this, is that um, when I see as God sees, I will do as God says. The minute that I saw that truck from my dad's perspective, everything changed. And that's the point, that trusting God changes our perspective on the future. Now, before we leave this section, I want to talk about Judas Iscariot for a moment. A couple of things you need to know. The name Judas is actually a beautiful name. I know that you're like, really? It's a beautiful name. People don't use it anymore because, you know, they love their kids. But, uh, but Judas is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Judah, which means praise. That's what the, that's what the, the Hebrew name Judah means. Um, also, there was another Judas in the group. Um, it was uh, Judas, son of James. And uh, so they didn't call him Judas. There was already a Judas, so they called him Judas Iscariot. Now, Iscariot was not his last name. Iscariot uh, is two Hebrew words that are uh, blended together. First is Ish, which is the Hebrew word that means man, and then Kerioth. Kerioth was a city about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, all of Jesus' disciples were from the area of Galilee except for Judas. So Judas was Judas, the, the man from Kerioth. That's how he was known. Now, in our message next week, I'm going to talk about the motivations behind his betrayal. But I want to mention the payment for a minute because it kind of sets up. We're going to talk, kind of give you the payoff next week. But I, I feel like I need to kind of lay out some of the breadcrumbs first. Is um, He gives 30, the, the chief priests give uh, Judas 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver was not a lot. In our currency, it would be about 20 bucks. Jesus was betrayed for nothing, for the equivalent of 20 bucks. And now, there's reasons for that, and I'm, we'll get to that next time. Um, in Exodus chapter 21, um, there's kind of like these miscellaneous laws. They seem miscellaneous, but they're kind of laws for when the children of Israel go into the land, th what happens in this certain situation? What happens if your next-door neighbor has an animal, comes into my uh, property and kills someone who's serving um, in, in my, uh, on my property, well, the animal that, that, that that guy had to pay 
20 pieces of silver, uh, 30 pieces of silver to the guy whose servant uh, was killed by, by the animal. 30 pieces of silver is also mentioned, and this is probably a little bit more um, applicable, in Zechariah chapter 11. Now, Zechariah is prophesying towards the end of his book about how the people aren't listening to him, and he's not going to shepherd them any longer if they won't listen to him. Now, listen to what he says. He says, I told them, if you think it best, uh, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, and I threw it at the potter at the house of the Lord. The, Zechariah is preaching to these people. He's pastoring these people, and they don't care. And he's like, you know what? If you don't want me to pastor you, you don't want me to be a prophet anymore, then just, you know, basically it's like give me a severance, and we'll be done. And, uh, and they say, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And they give him 30 pieces of silver simply to insult him that they don't care about what he's doing. And so he takes it and he throws it to the potter. And we're going to come back to that in a couple messages in chapter, uh, in chapter 27. The point is, is that these religious leaders, and we'll see them fulfill that in a couple of messages, but these religious leaders are fulfilling Bible prophecy and they don't even realize it because God is orchestrating this entire situation. And here's the thing that we can be certain of, and that is that God has not forgotten us, that God is not distracted, God is not unaware of your situation. Things are proceeding. Now, it may seem like it's out of control, but it's not. Things are proceeding according to his plan. And you might think, no, there's no way that that's the case. I mean, I've just ruined my life and God's never going to be able to use me. Can I just tell you something? You just aren't that powerful. Um, you know, we're not that powerful. God can use you. He wants to use you. If you just let him, let him transform your life and watch God use you. These guys don't even want to be used by God. They want to destroy Jesus. And you know what happens? God's still using them to accomplish his purpose. All right. Now, it goes on in verse 6. And uh, we get told this little vignette of what happens. It says, And when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head and sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you is that a good legacy grows with real worship. Real worship. Now, there's an important note that I want to make as we read this. And Matthew is kind of inserting this story a little bit out of the narrative. So uh, according to the Gospel of John, this story took place a few days before. So this story takes place the Saturday before, and Jesus is telling the story of what happens on Wednesday and Thursday. So why does he insert it here and not back then? Because remember, Jesus... Uh, Matthew is going to be giving us a picture of, of uh, Judas and how his life is beginning to unravel. And so this little moment is something that tells us a little bit about Judas. Now, um, Matthew records that in what we, what we just read, that 
the disciples, when they saw it, they were indignant. Like, why did you, get, why, why did you do this? We could have sold this, right? Um, John's gospel is going to tell us that it was worth about a year's wages. That's how expensive this oil was. But what we find out, according to the gospel of John, is that there was one particular disciple who was the ringleader in all this. You'll see it in, it's in your notes in uh, John chapter 12. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Matthew is adding the story here because Judas's life, as I said, is beginning to unravel. His greed is seen, and he wants to juxtapose that and the betrayal to this amazing act of worship and generosity. And that's one of the things that I love about the fact that there's four Gospels. Because one, not every Gospel writer tells us the same story. It tells us different things that happen. But I love that when one or two of the Gospel writers, a story overlaps, that there's usually a detail or two that we get that we didn't get from one that we get from the other. John tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who poured out the oil. And uh, I put the note in there in, in John 12, 3 to tell you that it was uh, Mary. It says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard or spike nerd um, and an expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This oil that was called nard or spike nard um, was not from Israel. It was actually imported from India, and, which is part of what made it so very expensive. Now, there's several women that are called Mary in the New Testament. Um, the reason is Mary was a very popular name because Mary was a transliteration of the Hebrew name Miriam. And Miriam was Moses's, the name of Moses' sister. And so in the Jewish tradition, people just name, you know, you get named um, in your family. That's a family name that gets used. And so Miriam is a common family name that was used. So the most famous Mary that we have in the New Testament is obviously Mary, the mother of Jesus. The second is a Mary uh, that's from an area called Magdala. That's what we call her, Mary Magdalene. Uh, the third is a Mary that's called Mary of Bethany. We see Mary three times in the Gospels. The first is in Luke chapter 10. When everybody is rushing around and serving, she is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning and growing. The second is in John chapter 11, when Jesus... Uh, finds out that his friend Lazarus has died. He goes to the city of Bethany and meets Mary and her sister Martha. And even in their grief, they express that they still believe. You see, and then we see this moment, that this, this pouring out of this, um, what another gospel calls the alabaster flask, um, was a moment of what marked her life, that her life was about worship. Mary was a worshiper. And this encapsulated all of who she was. You see, every single one of us, we want to be known for something. We want a legacy that when our name is mentioned at some point in the future, that it means something. Now, it's, it's, but it's never a, attached to one thing or one moment. It's a lot of different moments that create a legacy. And, and here's the point, is that whatever you want to be known for, it's never the thing that you do once. It's the things that we do daily that create the legacy. Mary gives us a lesson, and that is don't wait to do what's right. Now, I've been, um, I've been a pastor for a long time. Um, I, I've been a pastor for almost 25 years, and that's saying something because I'm only 32 years old. And, uh, <laughs> but um, I have had the privilege of sitting with a lot of people in the final hours of their lives. And when someone is in the final hours of their lives and they're still able to talk, 
um, there's nobody's talking about work. Nobody's talking about their hobbies. Um, everybody wants to talk about things that matter. They want to talk about relationships. They want to talk about friendships. They want to talk about family. They want to talk about kids. They want to talk about the future. They want to say the things that they wanted to say that they should have said years ago. But now they're like, I've got to say it now. Um, when my dad died about 18 months ago, one of the most meaningful moments in my entire life happened as I was sitting at his bed um, a couple of days before he died. Um, and that was watching my parents reconcile uh, before my dad died. Now, if you've been around, and if not, it's okay, but uh, my parents were divorced before my second birthday. I have no recollection of my parents ever being under the same roof. Um, I have no recollection of my parents having a conversation uh, together um, after their relationship was over. And so uh, the, f the first memory that I have of them ever being in the same room together was on the day of my wedding. And so, but don't worry, they made it super awkward for me. And... Um, <laughs> Now, but they got to this moment when my dad's life was ending that they realized that all the anger and bitterness hadn't amounted to anything. And watching them uh, apologize and reconcile was uh, one of the most meaningful things that's ever happened to me. And, my, and, and once again, my encouragement to you is, is that maybe it's time to make the call and apologize. Maybe... Um, it's time to go to counseling and fix whatever's broken so that you can actually be happy. Maybe it's the time that, you know, your wife's been telling you to take the trip, and it's like you've been pushing it off for years. Like, dude, take the trip. If not now, when are you going to go? I mean, and, and, and so what happens is, and then you got to tell the people that you, in your life that you love, tell them that you love them. And, um, and listen, and tell them constantly so that you get to the end of your life. They're not you know, we, uh, uh, did he, didn't he, did she, didn't she, that, listen, I, I don't want to regret ever holding it all in. So after my dad died, I made this decision that um, not just, this is part's easy with like your kids and your family telling them that you love them, but I, I decided that I was going to tell my friends that I love them. And, uh, and listen, my friends are these manly men, alpha males, champions of industry, uh, they're doing amazing things, and, and they're just, you know, they, they kind of live life a certain way. And, um, and even though they're all Christians and love the Lord, I mean, just, you know, it's not like we, we talk about our feelings a lot. And I remember the first time I was getting off the phone with one of them, and I was like, hey, love you, man. And he says, what did you say to me? <laughs> and I'm like, and, and, and I'm telling you, half my friends, they didn't even know what to do with that piece of information. I'm like, hey, love you, man. I'm like, What? I mean, it was like I was telling them that their extended warranty on their car had expired. And uh, like, you know, okay, thanks for letting me know. Um, and, and, and honestly, that was like, uh, and even a couple of them to this day, and I've been at this for, you know, all, you know almost two years now. I'm like, hey, love you, man. Uh, 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 thank you very much. Uh, see you later. <laughs> Hello? Click. And, um, but I decided, listen, I just made this decision. I'm going to tell these guys every time I talk to them, because I'm just not going to get to the end of my life without the people that are closest to me knowing how I feel about them. And, um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All the rest of you were too late. You get five extra points. So, thank you. And so, but I remember, it, it, wasn't, it was a few months ago. I remember, well, maybe it was better, close to a year ago. After saying this every time I talked to my friends, that I was getting off the phone, and he said, uh, he said, hey, love you, Bob. And I was like, and he was the first, I was like, yeah, yeah you do. 
And, uh, and so, <laughs> no, I didn't say that. And I was like, hey, love you too. And, uh, and it, was, it was like, finally, I was starting to break through. And, and sometimes, listen, sometimes you got to be I love you one before you get to be love you two. All right? Really? Nothing. <laughs> you know, okay, well, thank you, but you're too late. Let me just tell you something. I know sometimes the, the humor gets sophisticated. I know that sometimes people can't handle it. And if you went to public school, there's no way that you can, you can roll with us. And, uh, and you're like, didn't you go to public school? Yes, but I went an extra year. So that factors in. So <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> okay, I'm moving on. But listen, you got to just, you got to say it. The, the things that you want to be known for, your legacy becomes the influence that you had on the people around you. So, all right, let me move on because I only have a few minutes left. All right. Verse 17, now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, uh, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the Passover, uh, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written to him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Jesus, uh, Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. Now, um, last thing I want to tell you, and that is that a legacy is a life lived authentically. To understand what's going on, you need to understand uh, the seating arrangement that was taking place. Now, tr- traditionally, Christians have called this the Last Supper because it was Jesus' final meal before his arrest. But this was, in the Jewish tradition, the Passover meal, and what we call the Last Supper or communion is just one small sliver of an entire meal and commemoration that takes place. But I'm sure that all of you have seen this painting. Um, This is Da Vinci's Last Supper. Um, We put the names of everybody there so you could know who's who. Um, Now, there's a few things that... Now, I'll tell you this. I grew up in Boston, there's a huge Italian population in, in Boston. There's an entire section of town, East Boston, that is almost all Italian. It's great. That's some of the best food you're ever going to have in your life is in East Boston. But I can say this. Listen, 100% of the Italian homes that I went into as a kid living in Boston, 100% had a picture of Da Vinci's Last Supper in their home. And I would always wonder, like, how does everybody get one of these? And it's like... It's almost like it's standard issue when you're born. You're born Italian, you get a birth certificate, you get a great sauce recipe, and you get the Da Vinci painting. And, um, and so now, um, Da Vinci's painting was trying to capture the moment where Jesus says um, someone will, uh, when Jesus says that someone will betray him. There's so much to this painting, and if you are a person given to conspiracy theories, this is a great rabbit hole to go down um, because there's so many 
uh, there, there's so many theories, and if you'll forgive the pun, Easter eggs um, in this painting. Really, nothing. Okay. <laughs> Guys, Last Supper, Easter eggs, come on. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take five points from this service. I'm giving it to 945 because they're the only ones who laughed. I, 11 o'clock, they missed it. You guys missed it. I don't know what to say. All right, you guys are going to, when you guys, after you eat lunch, you're going to be like, oh, I get it now. That was hilarious. Anyway, okay, my favorite theory about the Last Supper painting is that there was, and I don't know who has time to do this, but someone took all the hands, right, like, um, you know, like Andrew here. Look at his hands. He looks like he's being held up at gunpoint. It's like, hey, man, sure, take my wallet. Um, so anyway, you look at all, how all the hands are. If you take how the hands are compared to all the pieces of bread, someone said that uh, they took staff paper and they made a musical composition based on the hands and the bread. Now, I mean, who knows? I mean, uh, Da Vinci did play the organ, and if you play it on the organ, it is a beautiful piece of music. Is it real? Who knows? But it is interesting. Um, uh, the other thing that's fascinating about this, art historians believe that Da Vinci... Uh, put himself in the painting. James, son of Alphaeus, uh, uh, art historians believe that that's actually a self-portrait of da Vinci. Like, you know, if you're going to paint this, why not just throw yourself in? Um, and so, anyway, so he, he put himself in there. And um, whether, it, is, it, is that actually true? I don't know. How do these art historians know what the dude looked like? Um, so, I have no idea. By the way, this painting is enormous. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to the Louvre in, uh, in, in, in France. I don't because I have an issue with the French. Um, so, but the, uh, but <laughs> there's some people who they have to, wow, he's really bold. You know, it's just like, I like their fries and their bread, but I just stay away from the rest of it. Um, and so, anyway, if you've ever seen the Mona, the, the Mona Lisa is literally like 8 by 10. It's really small. This painting is 15 feet high and 29 feet wide. It's enormous. And uh, so, anyway, um, I don't know why I told you. I didn't tell the other service. I didn't tell the other services that, and I already docked you guys five points. So, I, I, so okay. Um, now, here's the other thing that's important to know about this this painting. All of it is wrong. Um, uh, okay, now, there's there's several things that are wrong here, and I'm going to tell you. The first is, all these guys look like they're AARP members, and uh, like these guys, they all look like aging rockers. Like, they were all in, like, metal bands in the 80s, and they're like, oh, yeah, man, we're still hip, you know, and like, no, the disciples weren't that old. The apostles were teenagers in the, in the tradition of how a rabbi would choose disciples. Um, the oldest was Peter, because he was married, who was maximum 25 years old, and for my money, he was probably closer to 18 to 20. Now, the second thing is, they're all sitting on one side of the table. No one no normal person sits like that. The only people who sit like that are people who have been dating for less than six months. And so you sit in the restaurant because you feel, oh, just make us seem closer. And, uh, and, it just, and I just want you to know, it's weird. No one likes it. And everyone else in the restaurant is judging you hard. All right? And I tell you that because I love you. Not because it's an easy truth to share, but it's true. Could you imagine a group of 13 men walking into Outback Steakhouse like, hey, there's 13 of us, but we really all don't sit on one side. Can you make it a table for 26? Like, no, we're not doing that. Instead, uh, they sat around a table. In, in the Jewish uh, custom, it would have been, um, you would have been almost laying down. It, the, the table was about a foot off the ground. 
there was these giant pillows all around. You would lay on your left side so that you could eat on your right side. You were reclining almost the whole meal, which, by the way, is probably how we should be eating. Why are we sitting up? Why aren't we mostly laying down? Anyway, so um, it was probably something more like this. I don't know why this is kind of abstract. It's the best picture I could find. It's like, you know what would be cool? So if we made this picture out of focus. You know what's even better than out of focus? If you were a little better artist and made it in focus. Like, we should have just taken one more class, try to narrow that anyway. Um, I, I got to move on. Okay, so let's talk. So this is, it would have been U-shaped. The people who served would have been able to come around. There's a basin here to wash the feet of the people uh, who were there. We don't know, once again, Da Vinci just kind of decided who was sitting where. We don't know where everybody was sitting. We know where probably about four people were sitting. Jesus is the host, so he's sitting second, and this person says, here, how's I know you can know this is Jesus? He's the one that's glowing, okay? So he's here, and then we know that John was in a trusted position. In John chapter 13, it tells us that, Jesus, that John leaned back and rested his head on Jesus' chest to say something to him, and that would have happened if he was in this first position, which was uh, the most trusted person, which was to... Uh, the host's right, which is where we get our term right-hand man from. Um, the, set, the other thing that we know is that Judas was in the place of honor. And so he would have been to the left, and you see Judas here. They painted him in the dark and made him look like Charles Manson. And so it's like, how do we make this guy look totally demon-possessed? We'll make him look like an axe murderer. There we go. And so anyway, that's, there's like, so there's, you know, the Messiah is glowing, and then this dude is, you know, in the shadows. And um, the last thing that we know is, uh, the last place is Peter. Uh, we know that he was in the last seat, which would have been all the way here uh, in the, uh, at the end. Now, we don't know why. I also don't know why they gave him, like, this bald, bearded mullet. I don't really understand the artistic choice here. And then they gave him an outfit with the vest. I mean, he look, the, the outfit looks like, you know, Han Solo's gear from the first Star Wars movie. And um, anyway, once again, these people were a lot younger than they get um, painted as. Uh, we don't know why Peter was in last place. We don't know why he got stuck there. Maybe he got there late. Maybe he lost some kind of ancient form of rock, paper, scissors, and they put him at the end. Uh, but either way, he ended up in the last seat. And because of that, that's the place for the people who served. So that means that he was the one that was supposed to wash everybody's feet when um, as uh, when, they, when people got there, but he didn't want to because remember, these guys were always arguing about who was the greatest. So he's not going to immediately take the role of the servant. And in John chapter 13, the part that's just so amazing is when Jesus stands up and in this incredible act of humility, he washes, uh, everyone's, uh, washes everyone's feet. Um, look at verse 26, and we'll wrap it up with this. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, which was probably Psalm 118, uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you. Um, I want to explain something that helps us in understanding the conversation about communion. Like I said, when we talk about communion or the Lord's Supper, we're talking about one piece of the Passover meal. Now, if you're a little bit newer, and you're like, what is the Passover? 
uh, when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, God uh, sent Moses and Aaron as their deliverers. And God sent 10 plagues to Egypt. And the final plague, all of the plagues corresponded to the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Gives them night. They worshipped the Nile. God turns the Nile to blood. All of the judgments were judgments against the gods of Egypt. The final judgment was that they worshipped Pharaoh as, as a god. And so they, um, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. But there was a protection for God's people. They were supposed to huddle together in homes, put blood on the doorposts of their home, and then they would be standing with staff in hand, ready to leave at any moment. And they would eat lamb and unleavened bread because they didn't have time to let the leaven rise. Then the angel of death would see the, the blood over the doorpost and he would pass over the home. That's where, you get, that's where you get the term. But when the children of Israel leave Egypt, God tells them they can never forget this night. So he commands them to commemorate it and make it a memorial. When we get to the Gospels, they have been, uh, Jews have been practicing and celebrating the Passover now for the better part of 1,500 years. And the Gospel writers focus on one aspect of the Passover, which is the cup and the bread. Now, the Passover actually has four cups of wine that were toasted and things were said that all respond, uh, correspond to the promises of God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. If you're a note taker, I put them in there to go over quickly. The first is what's called the cup of sanctification. This is where God is removing them from Egypt and bringing them to a place of freedom by setting them apart. It says in, Acts, uh, or in uh, Exodus chapter 6, Therefore say to the Egyptians, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So the first is the cup of sanctification. The second is called uh, the cup of praise. This is where God declares that the people are going to be delivered from slavery. You'll see it up on the screen. It says, I will free you from being slaves to them. So this cup was a celebration of the good news that God had heard the prayers of the children of Israel and was now going to answer. The third is called the cup of redemption. And this is where God declares that he's going to take back what is rightfully his, his people. And it says in the last part of uh, Exodus 6, 6, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is the cup that we celebrate at communion as believers. It's the cup that Jesus picked up at the supper, that, that there was redemption in this cup. And this is where Jesus says, hey, whenever you drink this, remember me. The fourth cup is called the cup of acceptance, where God declares that these are going to be his people and he will be their God. He says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And so um, everything in the Passover Seder, Jesus is showing that relates to him. And he's showing that while the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt, every single person on the planet was still a slave to sin. And the point is, is that when you really understand communion, you understand that all of us are slaves to sin and Jesus came to free us and forgive us from the power of sin. And that's why Jesus connects all the symbolism of the Passover to himself. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he connects the Passover lamb to Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. My point is this, is that communion, and sometimes we think this, and it's, it's not true. Sometimes we think communion is for perfect people. Communion is not the place for the perfect. Communion is the place for the broken. That's why Jesus took bread and broke it. It is an invitation for broken people. 
You know, part of the Passover meal is taking these three pieces of matzah. Then you take the middle one and you break it. Put half of it back. You take the other half, you wrap it in linen, and then you hide it somewhere in the house. And it's a game that's played. The kids have to find it, and then whoever finds it gets a prize. That piece of, ma- piece of matzah that gets found is called the afikomen, which is kind of weird because it is the only Greek word that appears in an all-Jewish feast. What does afikomen mean in the Greek language? It simply means this, I have come. What does it signify? Many Jews are baffled by its significance, but those of us that understand the gospel, it's clear. That our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son was sent, and he tells us that his body is the one that's broken, and they break it. And and it was wrapped in linen and hidden away. And three days later, he rose from the dead. The disciples celebrated. But here's what I find so interesting, that even to this day, Jews from the area of Morocco take a piece of the afikomen and keep it with them for a full year until the next Passover. And there's a tradition they have that if you were ever out at sea and in a storm, all you have to do is take your piece of the afikomen and throw it into the water and it will calm the sea. A tradition, of course, which has its roots in Jesus, the one who came and quieted the storm simply by saying, peace, be still. And that's what we're reminded of when we come to the communion table, that if you're going through a difficult season, listen, you're in the perfect place. Because the afikomen, Jesus, wants to calm the storms in your life. It's the place where we remember what we've been saved from. It's the place where we remember who we belong to. And where we remember who God is transforming us into by his grace. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. And they're going to hand out the communion elements. And I'm just going to invite you to hang on to them. We'll partake of the elements together as Pastor George leads us. I will live for the moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. I will linger and listen. I can't miss a thing. Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new. So I surrender all. Because all I want is to live within your love. Be undone by who you are. My desire is to know you Lord, I will open up again Throw my fears into the wind I am desperate for a touch Cause all I want Is to live within your love Be undone by who you are My desire is to know I am desperate for a touch of heaven. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. 
gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Let's partake of the cup together. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you that we can remember a sacrifice that was so great because of a love that is so amazing. And God, you're not done. You've forgiven us, you've saved us, but Lord, you want to do more. And I pray, God, that we would be open to everything that you want to do in us, for us, and through us. We prayed in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.